Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And folks, we've got a special one for you. We are going to be talking with just a legend of the sport, someone that has made so many great strides in this in the sport of tennis and um just looking forward to just having a wonderful chat with him um bryce i know that you and i have talked about getting this interview scheduled and i'm just so very very happy that it is finally coming uh coming coming forth so uh i'll pass it over to you to do a little bit of an intro for the for the listeners well we have no other than the haitian sensation with us today um you know ronald agenor and I was telling Isaac this before we 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 got on this this call here. You know, I enjoy interviewing the current players. You know, they're cool and that's fun and all that kind of good stuff. But when I get an opportunity to interview someone who I watched during my formative years as a tennis player, um, particularly uh, since there were such few players uh, of color at the time that I was coming up uh, playing the game. Uh, this guy, I absolutely remembered and enjoyed uh, watching play. Uh, once again, we have Ronald Agenor with us today. Uh, top 25 uh, singles player on the ATP Tour. He snagged three uh, ATP Tour singles titles. Had a really lengthy career, 19 years. And, and although players nowadays are playing a little longer, uh, back then, you know, he was a bit of a, him and Jimmy Connors, they were kind of the ones that had a little bit of a longer career than most. Um, you know, this guy made it to the quarters of Roland Garros, uh, losing to the eventual champion, Michael Chang. Um, you know, something we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is very historic for the sport, is the fact that Ronald Agenor was one half of the first final between two men of color, uh, him and Yannick Noah. Uh, so we're definitely going to talk to him about that. Ronald has had victories over people, you know, like Agassi and Connors and Anacone, um, Forget, Pat Cash, Henri Leconte, and uh, Bruguera. Um, and we are so excited to talk to him today uh, because he is truly a legend of the sport. And with that, we welcome Ronald Agenor to Brothers on Tennis. Well, thank, thank you for uh, very much for having me tonight. It's uh, it's a great honor. I heard a lot of great things about what uh, uh, you guys are doing, and I'm so um, happy to be part of this uh, this um, interview. And uh, hopefully, we can get to talk a little bit uh, more about uh, my career, but a little bit what what's going on in the game today. Absolutely. And and Ronald, it is absolutely our pleasure. I mean, again, we do this because of folks like you, because yeah. you laid the groundwork to be able to, you know, really, really, uh, we won't say allow, but you, you let the way of people of color being able to really come into the sport of tennis and, and really be able to, to, you know, take it to where it's at today. So we thank you first and foremost for, for not only playing, but for everything that you've done mm -hmm. in the sport. So yeah. And with that being said, just wanted to start off with a little bit of the background. So for folks sure. that don't know you, you know, talk to us about growing up and how you even got into tennis and and what your, you know, formative years were like with the sport. You know, it's a very uh, unusual, but 
my I'm basically a Haitian family, and I, I got to give a little bit of my background because sometimes people, they say, oh, hey, you don't look Haitian. So what is the definition of a Haitian? Uh, or what is the definition of a human being? So you, we all have different roots, different shades of color. But at the end of the day, I'm from Haiti. My dad was a, a, a Haitian and grew up in Haiti and met my mom. That is, um, her grandparents were from Lebanon. This is a, a whole group of, uh, of people that came in the 30s in Haiti. Uh, but she was born in Haiti, and they got married, and they got six children. Um, I am the only one who was not born in Haiti. However, I was born in Africa, so I'm the youngest one of six children. And my dad was a ended up, my dad did a lot of studies, and um, he ended up uh, being a diplomat at the United Nations. And I ended up being born in Morocco where I spent about 10 years. And I was not playing tennis back then. And then my dad continued his, uh, his career for the United Nations and we moved to Congo. And while we moved to Congo, so I have three brothers and two sisters, I discovered the game of tennis at 10 years old in Congo. So for four years, I played a lot of tennis, but it was always fun, casual. And now the first time I went to Haiti, I was 12 years old. So I went to visit family and stuff like that. And uh, my three older brothers were studying in France. They went to college in France. And one time, one of my brothers, uh, Lionel, came to Congo and he saw me play. He said, this, my brother got a little talent. So <laughs> he said, he asked my dad, can Ronald come and finish his high school? In France, because all my brothers and sisters, they were, they were, uh, they were in Bordeaux, France, uh, going to college. And my dad said, why not? There you go. And now I find myself in, in France with my, my three brothers and, and two sisters. And um, thanks to them, I, I got that family environment. So I was still, even though I was not with my parents, so I was still connected. And they took care of me. And... Um, my brother Lionel was my coach, ended up being my coach for seven years, and got me from no ranking at 14 years old and to a top 50 ranking uh, about seven years later. Wow. So that's 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 the story. As for my connection with Haiti, uh, at 18 years old, I ended up being the number eight junior in the world. And by the way, this is the first time I made my first. Uh, contact with Atherash because I played the Orange Bowl in Miami in 1982. I got to the semifinals and I got a phone call from Atherash and he said, he asked me, Ronald, you're a hell of a talent. I uh, would like for you to join my uh, management company, which was based, based in Washington, D.C. And uh, But my dad said, you're going to college first. <laughs> and, <laughs> so that was, I was torn between, the decision was between Arthur Ashe offered to join his management company in D.C. that he was sharing with Donald Dell and going to University, University of Miami where I got a full scholarship. So I went to college. 
<laughs> but, but my college experience didn't last more than a day. Is when I'm so I'm traveling to Miami and fresh of being number eight junior in the world, so I'm like super excited to be playing college tennis and stuff like that. And there was no I didn't I didn't get anybody to really uh welcome me or explaining me what what was going on and um I was told by the administration that I would have to sit for like a few months and get all my you know the tests that you have in America for college and stuff like that and at that point I say so when am I gonna so my main concern was not I said when am I gonna start playing and they say well uh if you if everything goes well maybe in the six months or three months or for the next season and I'm like what am I doing here? So I, <laughs> right. So I, right. Yeah, true story. So I called my dad. I said, Dad, what am I doing here? I can't because of my me going to college in France and all. Oh, they need this, this. I said, Why didn't you tell me all this before I even flew in? Right. So two days later, I was back on a flight in France and I we had a meeting with my dad and I said, Dad, can I just turn pro? After Ash is asking me to come in his management company. And the only thing I heard from my dad, that's fine, as long as you get to the top 15. Mm. So that was, the, that was the deal with my dad, and I was happy uh, that uh, he didn't, you know, say, well, you got to go to college because, you know, you might, everybody went to college, got their degrees and, and different things, and are very successful. But... Um, I was uh, super happy, so I didn't have any. Uh, but also, he wanted me to continue play for Haiti. That was very important to him. Okay. And you know what's interesting is um, I read that you know Arthur Ashe was one of your early heroes. He he and Bjorn Borg. Yes. So tell me, what was that experience like when you got that phone call from Arthur Ashe? Um, you know. It was, your, it was so, yeah, I mean, after Ash, you know, when I was in Congo, I was watching him win uh, Wimbledon, I was like, oh, my God, I just want to be like him. You know, I was, and I loved the way he was playing tennis. It was straightforward tennis. Just like, as a matter of fact, the, still the best tennis today, still the, the tennis that they played back in the 70s. Those players were on, had unbelievable technique. People, we'll talk about hopefully later about what's going on in the game today, but I was I was so impressed with uh, what I was seeing and the agility that he had, and he made tennis look like so easy. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> Effortless, you know? There's some <laughs> other players that did the same, but after I stood out, and you know, he was the only man of color, you know, getting to number one in the world and winning Wimbledon, it was just, wow, he did it, you know? as uh, So for me, all the way, in, in Congo, and I was in the south of, of back then it's called Zaire, okay? Mm-hmm. And so I was in Lubumbashi, and sometimes you would not get good TV reception, right? Uh, but I was able to to watch Atharash win Wimbledon, and I was really so happy. My dad said, hey, maybe you should pick up this game. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I got... Really um, happy to see another uh, man of color being number one in the world. That was 
big moment for me. But at the same time, um, so Atharash inspired me to pick a tennis racket. It's very important to know. So role model models uh, do make a difference. Absolutely. And, oh yeah. And then, and then, uh, when I got to France, I was able to watch more tennis, of course, on TV. And when I start watching Borg playing, and when what I love about Borg was his, you know, ability to stay calm and composed. And I just, it was a different style than Atharash, but both of them, to me, were the best ever in different styles for for everything they were their personalities, their, the way they were playing the game. And they became my role models, both of them. You see, and I found this very, uh, very, it was very important, you know, every player, I mean, in every different part of life or sports or whatever you're doing in life, you always have some kind of inspiration. And I'm, I'm happy that I was able to get, uh, to have Atharash, you know, showing me the way and uh, and Borg showing me something different, and both of them brought brought the best out of me. Absolutely. I mean, Ronald, you talk about you know your you know folks that you looked up to in, in Arthur Ashe, and 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 I, I I can only imagine what it must have been like as you know a teenager, twelve, fourteen years old, leaving Haiti and going to France to be cared for for your three brothers and your two sisters. I mean. Talk to us about that, that how that came about and and what was that like living away from your parents, but living with your siblings and them taking care of you and focusing on tennis? It, it was very, very important. However, uh, remember, I was not born in Haiti. So right. I, I discovered Haiti at the age of 12 for a family visit. Right. But my life was in Africa for 14 years and then turn out to be 20 years in France. So what happened is because of me, you know, traveling around, experiencing the African culture, North Africa, Congo, which was Exaire. And I grew up in a such a, how do you call it, free spirit. Everything, mother nature is beautiful, life is great i was going to a french school both places morocco and congo are former french colonies just like haiti and so for me this is almost the same culture going over you see haiti they speak french former french colony congo morocco then you're back in france so it's a normal channel so i always felt at home because of the language that makes sense. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. then when I, at 14 years old from Congo, when I went to Bordeaux, it was just a continuation of my journey. Because French was my main, my main language. Mm-hmm. And, and in our family, we speak Creole and, and French, the other two languages that we've been speaking the most. And um, my brother Lionel uh, really pushed the issue and became my coach for seven years. Um, and I was going to regular school, going, going to school at eight o'clock in the morning and done at five. So it's, it's completely different than in, than in America. You are not going out of school. Here they go to, out of school like at 2.30. So they have the rest of the day. School was until five o'clock in the evening. 
So sometimes we would practice with my brother at five o'clock in the morning. Wow. We would go. Now what? We would go and practice between twelve and two. He would come and pick me up at school. We'd go on the on the courts at the at the university and uh, of Bordeaux. And then I, sometimes I would play tournaments. I was playing. I started to play a lot of tournaments after school. So I had a life. Uh, I really started competing like at 14, 15, because between 10 and 14 years old, I played one tournament. Oh. One tournament that I won. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There you and go. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, so I beat everybody for, I, w- I think it was in 1976. I still have the pictures. And because um, what happened is that you had tennis, as you know, was the elite, was a rich sport for the rich people. And just imagine in the all the way down is Lubumbashi, which is way south in Congo. And I had to play. I was probably the only black brown skinned player over there. And everybody was white because the clubs where the tournaments were, um, these were the kids that were from families that had their own, um, because these are, you know, all these people are from Belgium, France, and they were um, engineers, um, and they were, you know, that part of Congo is probably the richest, one of the richest in the world. You got diamonds, copper, you got all kind of minerals, and all those, because Congo is a former colony, so all those people were there, you know, to continue develop the the economy in whatever they were doing over there. So these were country clubs that were only for the elite uh, non-Congolese people. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I was so I was happy to 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 have won my first tournament there in 1976. So you have some success as a junior, and then yes. you end up becoming a pro. And, and Ronald, I'm just going to tell you this. There were three things that I remember about you as a player when I was watching you as I was a, a kid. Mm-hmm. Number one were the smooth ground strokes, particularly the backhand. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always liked your backhand. Mm-hmm. Number two, although, and I don't know if they were characterizing you back then as a baseliner, I always knew that you knew how to handle your business at the net. You were not one of these kind of guys that got a short ball and then retreated back to the baseline. You know, you definitely could take care of business at the net. But the thing that I probably remember the most was the hair. Now, I got to tell you this. I had a lot of hair, that's for sure. And I remember (laughs) Brad Gilbert made a a funny comment in a a newspaper about about my hair. But at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of stupid people out there. And social media has allowed a, a bunch of stupid people make stupid comments. Mm-hmm. See, and when you get a chance, watch my 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 match against Yannick Noah. 
Uh, we played about four times. I lost to, I lost three times against Yannick, good friend of mine. And the match that is on YouTube that we played in Bordeaux in 19, I believe that's 19, 1988 or 1989, um, I won that match in three sets. You would, I don't even, even me when sometimes I, I get the chance to watch it a little bit, the highlights. We're playing like tennis in the 70s, which is serving volley, return volley. I mean, the points were very short. It was like playing back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So I think some people are, uh, you, you know, you live in America. And sometimes people make comments just to say s- stupid things, right? <laughs> they right. just they just limit yourself. And there's a reason why I didn't go to top five in the world or top ten. There's, there's a few reasons. But people have preconceived notions. They have very close-minded. And in this tennis world, sometimes they try to corner certain people in a certain way of thinking and a certain way of playing. So to describe my game, I was an attacking player. An attacking player doesn't mean that you serve and volley day and night, right? Right. So there's a difference in that. And you just know where you stand, where, where your shots are, where, how you play the game. And I always say when I train players, remember one most important thing. There is more than one way to play the game. You see what I mean? Okay. And with that philosophy, and I remember when I was training Bordeaux in France, my club in, in France, they were saying, oh, they were telling my brother, oh, my God, your brother is, is missing so many balls. They're going out in France. Said, oh. So my brother goes, very cool. My brother was a very low key. He goes, oh, look, yeah, I agree with you. The balls are flying out everywhere. But guess what? We tra- that's, why we, that's what training is about. You're training. Keep the ball in. Because I was using a lot of power. I was using what you call like max. What you see today, it's a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Right. But this power is mostly generated from the rackets. It's not a better technique. So I always say, and my brother told the guy, say, you know what? When my brother, when those balls going to go in, he'll be the best players in the world. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Absolutely. And, and, and Ronald, I mean, you, you spoke about, you know, the matches that you played with Yannick Noah. You played mm-hmm. for, um, of course, again, talking, you know, you mentioned some stupid comments. So I'm very mm-hmm. interested in, in, in hearing your perspective or kind of what happened when you and Yannick played the final at the uh, event. I guess it was a Basel, Basel, Switzerland back in 1987. I believe that was the first time that two men of color had uh, had uh, it, it met was, in a final. It was incredible uh, moment of history that that I understood. Actually, I understood this moment more than Yannick. He understood this moment more today. But 
when he was a player, he didn't understand the magnitude of what we have done that particular day. Of course, Noah went, is a superstar, won the French Open in 1983. This year is going to mark his 40 years. And what have happened there was an amazing, uh, an amazing thing because you are in Europe, two black players. Now, sometimes I start reading, say, well, they say, Agenor is not black, he's brown. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, ridiculous. So, so it came from somebody in America. And I'm like, what, what, what is this guy's problem? What defines a black man or a brown man? Right? There's no difference. Right. That's There's right. no difference. There's no difference. We, we, and, and the reason why I always kept my head on my shoulders, because I grew up in Africa. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Africa. I could say I'm an African, right? So mm-hmm. the thing is, in Europe, they didn't give a crap about this time in history because they don't, they don't think it's important. The newspapers the next day, nobody even mentioned, oh, these are two players of color. This is Yannick. And Ronald. Mm. Nobody mentioned that these are two players of color. Why? Because it didn't click. In America, dang, you got two players of color making a first final of the first in the history. Mm-hmm. Because very few people know, or very few people knew, knew back then. And probably very few people know today. And this is history because. This is what is happening in America with all this, what's going on today and in the world. And I'm grateful that, I'm so grateful that I, you know, I lived 14 years in Africa. I learned so much and in Europe for 20 years and I've been here in America for, since 1998. So I have a worldwide, you know, understanding of the world, of, the, of humans in general, different cultures, different language. At some point, I was fluent in Swahili, speak a little bit of Arabic. Mm. I learned German, I learned Italian. So, so this is something that have helped me understand. But it's not only, not until, sorry, that I got to live in America that I start to understand the importance of this game. Mm-hmm. Right. You see what I'm saying? Because I was, I understood it because I played for Haiti. I kept my Haitian citizenship because of my dad, right? I didn't play for France. So I kept kind of like my culture inside me from, from, from the heritage of my, of my, my roots. These are my roots, right? So, so, so I kept being representing Haiti all around the world, which is a black country, the first black country to be independent. And, and so, Ronald, let me ask you this. So 
with that being said, what was your experience like on the tour? Because, like, for example, we've spoken to Zena Garrison, and she would mention that she felt like she got treated better outside of the United States than she did when she played in her own country. Uh, what was your experience like on the tour as as a man of color? Um, Here's the thing. The culture, the black culturism in America is completely different than the black culture in Europe or in Africa or in the Caribbean. And until you experience all these different cultures, it's not easy to understand. Right. Mm -hmm. But but it's not until I got to live in America all these years. My my wife is African-American. She's from Atlanta, Georgia. And. I learned I learned so much about what America is about. I learned. How black people have suffered here. While living in France. My life, even as a brown or black man, was different than, than here. How so? Because the history, if you take a, like uh, Mr. Washington, who passed away a few years ago. So he was telling me all these stories that he has to go through. And I didn't experience that as a brown slash black man in Europe. Right? So until you live in America to see what life is about here, you're not going to understand. You can read books so, or watch movies that we have YouTube. We can, we can learn about history, but it was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. So when you can't go to the tennis club because you're black, it's only for white people. That's painful. Mm-hmm. So me living in France, I never experienced that because they didn't have that. And when you know your history, you, you, you better understand the present and you can prepare for the future. So Zena, so when I was watching all, all the players, those, all the African-American players, I was trying to understand what was going on because there was a lot, you could tell there's a lot of, they're playing two matches, one on the court or maybe three and one with the system. Uh You see, because this sport here was not for black people. Mm -hmm. And I believe the race issue and all these problems that you that have been going even worse past years in America has prevented a lot of black people to pick tennis as a sport, especially the men. There's a reason why you have more female black players than male black players. So it is very it has been very difficult for black players in America to succeed. Worse today than back thirty years ago. How is that possible? 
And why would you and, and what's your perspective on why um, we do have more uh, black women players than men? I, I personally think, first of all, in general, whatever color you are, girls are more dedicated than most men when it comes to certain certain things. Um, you have a situation where, let's take the, the example of the USDA, right? Remember, when, when you live in France, you're French, whatever, whatever background you have, you're French, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a French passport, you're French. But racism does exist. And between and you guys, racism exists in every freaking country on the planet. I don't know one country that doesn't have racism. It's different, has different level levels, right? But it exists every country in the world. The only problem that you have in America is black people is the only race that came here by force. <laughs> right. So therefore, they were not invited. Right? They didn't right. come, hey, let me go to America. I'm going to see if I can get a better life. No. So they came here by force. So you, it's difficult to compare uh, what's going on with blacks and all these cultures that you have, which makes America great. But if you come to America and you just stay in your culture, then it's not America anymore. Right. So when you have the USDA that have to manage, um, it's like a company. Uh, freedom is a big word, but it does exist in America. There's justice. There's a lot of things that are amazing that you don't find in other countries. However, um, if you take the example of the USDA, when they have to give wild cards to a player, do they go by race or level? Right? Because you come to a system that you don't have in other countries, even though you have like different cultures. So when you are at the USDA and you have to give the wild cards at the US Open, right? And do you give to a Latin player, an Asian player, a black player, or a European American player, or a born and raised American? So the problem has been very complicated because you know you only get better when you have a good coach. And who pays for the coach? If you don't have the money to pay for a coach, how are you going to get better? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So the whole problem of tennis in America is access to knowledge. Knowledge is money. Knowledge is gold. But if you don't have access to that knowledge, how do you go further? I don't know if you notice, if you look at the history books, Sloan Stevens is probably the first ever black tennis player that was developing an academy. 
Check the books. Check the records. Check the facts. Hmm, that's interesting. I, had, I hadn't thought about that. These, these are mm-hmm. facts. These are facts. Training with, uh, okay, she stayed there until, she, I guess, until she was 14, 15, 16, whatever it is. But no academies in America has produced any black player. None. Zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Most African American players were mated with their families. Mm-hmm. Local programs, community programs. At the end of the day, is their families get the Williamson? No. What happened is when you're so good, then the UST will take care of you. But however, it is not easy for the USTA to define who you give wildcards to when you have such a diverse culture and when you have to be fair to every culture. Am I right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is subject to a discussion. And it's not black and white because now, what's strange is that you don't see any more Asian Americans at the top of the rankings anymore, like they used to. Like with Michael Chang and all those guys, that you had like a, I think about five or seven Asian American players. They were they were top players. Mm-hmm. You had so many black players 30 years ago. You even had a lot of African players. You have players from Senegal. You have players from from Nigeria, he had players from, yeah. uh, yeah. Odazor, yes. The, the Duke. Yes, the Duke. <laughs> he had, he had, he had the Duke. These are all good friends of mine. He had Tony Moe. He had his mm-hmm. son playing with the guys today. But, look, thankfully, whatever is good or bad, because you never know if you have done things differently, if you have gone further up or further down. I am grateful that I, I had the path uh, that I had because I was kind of like, even though I experienced the racism that I experienced in my life as a growing up, everyone only left us a different story, but it was mild. So I was able to focus. This is, this is very important. People don't understand. Tennis is the most difficult sport on a mental standpoint. Now, I'm not talking about mountain climbing and stuff like that. This is like another another planet for me. You know, people that go up the rocks, you know, mm-hmm. mountains with 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 no no protection, with just the hands. Like I, I, I'm not. Even, this is not even sport. This is this is almost unreal to me. But just <laughs> no. This is this is this is this is this is there in another league. They just risk their lives and every time they go up. Uh, but tennis is a very difficult sport mentally because there's so many things that you have to manage. And if you're not prepared, you will fail. So right. the USTA all the past 30 years, didn't have a program 
because there was too much too much politics was involved were, were involved right so they didn't have because if you favor the blacks then you have the other culture to say oh you give all the wild cards to the blacks if you give it to the asians then you then the, Lat, the latin players this how many latin american players you have succeeded right how many not that many not, not a lot I, I think there was one because it it doesn't fit so the tennis problem in america is also related to politics unfortunately so when black players are going out there if they don't have right guidance and if they're not able to focus on the game and if they don't get the best coaches coaches out there they're not going to make it unless the parents are around and they're going to take over they're going to manage coach it's the way it is this has nothing to do with talent you have all these organizations around the country for black players now how many are getting out of that of that program of those programs you got Tafoy. Tafoy came from Africa. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So, and Tafoy, if he had got better coaching early in his career, he would have been like top five in the world already before. So, access to great coaching to the best coaches in the world. It's part of the deal. So in taking that perspective, Ronald, mm-hmm. what are you thinking about in regards to the state of the game as it is today? What are the gaps that you're seeing and what are some of the things that you see as being a positive and or a good thing for people of color? The for people of color, the great thing is they can see there's no limit. You see Serena winning all these Grand Slams, you see Naomi Osaka, that is Haitian, they had a great story. Um, one thing is for sure, this is not like of talents. There's so many talents. But with the globalization, nobody comes to America anymore for the tennis. So when you go to tournaments in America, I'm not talking about the Grand Slams. All you see is American players playing against each other. That is so true. <laughs> that is true. Yep. It's true and, enough. And what you call the minor league of tennis, like the Futures, has become a playground for, for college players. Mm. So how do, you, how do you make your way up? How do you make your way if you have, you're stuck in the Futures at this level? You got no coach, or you got no money, not enough money to pay for a coach. You have to pay for that. It costs a lot of money to travel in America, pay for a tournament, pay for a hotel, rent a car. I mean, you need a huge budget. But the thing is, the USD has the money. Right. And and their play development for. And I'm not talking because with my background, I don't differentiate black, white, blue, green. I've seen everything. I've embraced every culture 
every religion. But however, when it comes to the point that you see a certain culture is not able to move forward, like why? There are reasons, and the reasons are very obvious. But, like I said, there's too much politics in tennis because it's matching what's going on in America and some other countries. Don't think it's just like an American thing. It's a world global. It's a global thing. But the the players like you know the Williams sisters, what they've done is absolutely phenomenal. And you've got Sloane Stevens. He's the first African American that won a, a Grand Slam after the Williams. And then you have a lot of players. You have a you have so many players out there, but they don't have, unfortunately, they have the talent, they have the ability, but they don't have a, the channel to produce. First of all, champions are never mass produced. However, you can have a series of players that can be produced over and over and over just because there's a path. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? So the problem is that there's a path for this one, there's a path for this one. The path is not the same for everybody. So so to me, um, the game has changed dramatically, not just in America, but around the world. You, they have created, you know, those, those futures uh, that are, they're bad. They're bad because some players, they're staying like five years in the futures, playing all mm. these minor league events, and they claim that they're professional. They're not. They don't have the level. Mm-hmm. They don't have the level, but they go and spend thousands and thousands of dollars playing those stupid tournaments, which is just, it should be a stepping stone. And you just play for a year and then you're done. Right. You see? But you're going to spend as much as money in those tournaments than any other tournament. Actually, you can spend more money. So money is an, is an issue, but it's not just the main thing. You should have access to really good coaching anywhere you go. And that is not the case. So all those organizations that you have in America, most of them, what are they doing? What are they doing? Where are the players? So Tiafoe is the one player out of one pro- program that got millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Oh. Do you see my point? So people are like, oh, it's great. Tiafoe got from this, this, this program in, uh, in Maryland and all that stuff. Wait a minute. How many millions did you all get to get one player? Mm-hmm. That's true. And 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 what do you think about? It seems like there's this trend, even from international players, about now coming in and playing collegiately. Well, this is a very sensitive subject. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but every subject that we're talking about, everything is sensitive. You know, because right now people they're going to listen to the podcast and say, "Oh yeah." They can start making conclusions about about anything, right? However, you got to tell the truth. The mm-hmm. truth is, 
You know what what makes America great? What? There's, there's no other country can match America for that. None. The education. The college system in America is the best in the world for athletes. There's no better. So, because you are able to, just think about it. You are able to do something that you love, which is sport, and get an education. And, and if you're getting a scholarship, like an athlete, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, athletes that are recruited from Europe to play tennis, they get a full scholarship, right? Right. So this is unbelievable. This is the best. This is what... This is the best America has to offer. So, I've been in tournaments of, of friends that are coaching, you know, at this level, Division One, Division Two, and when you look at the players, I went to New Orleans uh, a few years ago, and there's that team. So this coach is originally from Egypt, and I look at at the players on the team, I'm like, damn, you don't get you you don't have one American player there. <laughs> <laughs> Boys and girls are like, wow. So I if and that's again that's my personal opinion. I've not, this has nothing to do with politics or or you're from the right, the left, the middle. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. I came I came to a point that to me, politics is bad. Mm-hmm. It's bad. It's just people don't respect each other anymore. Done. So you have to find your way where you fit in. And um, because some people, you would like to join them, but they're not, they're not welcoming you. So what are you going to do? Right? So, but thankfully, the, the world is a, is a big place. So... And again, it's my personal opinion. They should maybe have 50%. 50% of college scholarship go to Americans. Right. Okay? That's my personal opinion. Because you're still giving the opportunity to... Because you can't. But when you have consistently 80, 90, or 100% of players... What is that telling you? What is the reason? So every college is going to give you a difference. Well, uh, non-American players, they fight more for the team because they want it more. And in my head, I say, did you give them that option to fight for your team? Mm-hmm. You don't know. Because I see how you uh, a student gets college, college scholarship, and when they're getting this college, they get... This is the joy. The joy is unbelievable. Right. So maybe if they were giving more chances to American players, and this has, again, nothing to do with color. It can be white, black, Asian, whatever it is. It's just, can you give maybe 50% to non-Americans and 50% to Americans? So that would be a fair, a fair balance. But... I'm not, I've never been a college coach, will never be. 
So I don't know the reasoning about all what's behind the choice of the coaches. You see what I mean? Yep. Right. So I'm not going to criticize for saying this because some of them, they say, well, Americans don't fight. Foreigners fight more to be on the team. I don't know. I cannot tell you. I'm, I've never been in the field. You see? But from my perspective, I think it would be fair to give more chances to have a quota in quota in uh, colleges to give it more chances to Americans. Like you have uh, split in half, half and half, right? Right. I, I, I saw on the tennis channel and I forgot. No, no, but what, what, do you, what do you think about it? What do you think about what you said? Well, I, I saw on the tennis channel recently, and I can't remember who was saying it, that they were saying that international players have figured it out that the United States has created this amazing training facility, training ground, the collegiate sports system, and they are taking full advantage of it. And it's right. going exactly to what you're saying, because I believe and, and I played, you know, for Southern University. I believe the coaches are under pressure to win championships. Right. Because there's all sort of in, sorts of incentives to win. So if you're a coach and your incentive is to win, but, you know, your mind is not focused on whether your players have to be American or or international, you know, you're going to go for whoever you think is going to get you okay. the ship so, so, and, so, and get you the money. Got you. Got you. But here's the deal. Look at the 70s and 80s. I mean, look at the roster at, at UCLA. Uh-huh. Look at the players. Look at the players. Stanford. All this, yeah. All those guys. I mean, that was all. He went to college. Mm-hmm. The, the level was so amazing because there was not, and you know, these these future tournaments around the world have killed the game, killed the game in all aspects. And all those players that play college in America back in the 70s and 80s, they ended up being amazing players, top 10 players in the world. The only now, now you see players going to college and get back in, getting back in the game. And playing big tennis. Yeah. So you had a gap of about 30 years, 30 or 40 years. Where it says you can't go to college and try to turn pro. Right. Not, not, not they're reverting it. You see? So, but that's, um, that's a very good uh, subject. And um, hopefully something can be done to allow maybe more American players to be to have some some kind of priority over I wouldn't say priority, but if I'm a coach in college and then and then I gotta make sure I win the title so my paycheck can can stay the right. same the next year. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, am I gonna go with a player from uh, Europe that is going to die for me? I'm going to play with an American that's going to be trouble. 
without any other tribe. But you don't know. You have to recruit. You have to know who you're recruiting. Yeah. And, and this is something the, the, the USD has been pretty bad at, mm-hmm. recruiting, recruiting uh, talents. I've not been finding them, identifying the right talents. Okay. And now yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask you what would then be your thoughts on what they can do to improve that? No. I'm not taking a look at the coaches at the UST today. But a few years ago, I can see one player that got one coach that that was up there. So what happened is the 80s, you know, all those players like Agassiz and Chang, Courier, and all these players from the 80s and 90s, they had amazing coaching. I'm not just talking about the Academy of Bulletary. But a lot of them, including Jimmy Connors, they were coached by former players that were top number one in the world or won Grand Slams. So they always got knowledge was transferred to another generation of players. Now, let me ask you this. When did it stop? For 20 years since Andy Roddick, you still don't have a, a male American player winning a Grand Slam. So what happened all those years? The big three. I, I was about to say, I did the big three. Okay. For, for two <laughs> for, for two. And you cannot downgrade the importance of coaching in America, in tennis. Yeah. Okay? Because every other sport, the coach is the man. How right. can the players win in the title? Of course. It's way more difficult to coach a team of 15 people. Just all those team sports that got you have to manage a lot of players at the same time, a lot of strategy, and their paycheck. All those basketball coaches, football coaches, it's an amazing paycheck. When you see the paycheck, the, the coaches in colleges in America, there's only a handful that make that make six figures. However, um, you're dealing with a situation here where you have Former top players are not part of the player development system at the USDA. So Agassi doesn't coach. Sampras doesn't coach. Chang doesn't coach, except for Nishikori. doesn't coach the USDA. Kurye doesn't coach. Am I correct? Yeah, no, you're correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Todd Martin doesn't coach. Former know. black players don't coach. Malivai doesn't coach. No, correct. Brian Shelton coached a team, and then he coached his son. Rodney Harmon was at the UST before coaches coaches college. So, where are the former players helping the top players today? None. Very rare. Almost doesn't have, or if it if it happens, it's like in a, such a private setting you won't even know. Right, right. So look at what's going on in Europe. Did you see the entourage of Djokovic? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he even us. Yeah, two, exactly. two former, three former players in his team, and two won a Grand Slam. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So, how do you expect? Of course, the player is the one winning, but if if a coach has an opponent, now look at Alcaraz, Ferrer, former number one. Yep. So, I don't mean to diminish other coaches that have not been top players. It's not what my my uh, uh, what I'm trying to say here, because you know. Some players, they want to be the best coaches in the world. They read books. They train. Of course, you don't need to be a former top player to be a great coach, right? Right. However, the process can be faster because there's a lot of mistakes you won't make. Right? Why do you think Alcaraz is already already number one in the world in the team? Because he got so much knowledge with him all these past years. Because I'm telling you, tennis is not easy. It's easy if you get the right coach to help you move forward. So Americans right now have been doing the, they have a difficult path. Of course, they have like, what, 10 players in the top 100 today in the men's, mm-hmm. the men's side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, America got to be number one in everything they do. Stay tuned for part two of the Ronald Agenor interview.